Well, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on the Evangel Life broadcast. Um, hope your holiday season is going well so far this year. Uh, we just finished up uh, with our annual Thanksgiving fair last weekend, um, <clears throat> ending in a Christmas concert. Many of you probably were able to watch some of that uh, fair and the uh, music uh, on the live stream. Hope you enjoyed that. And uh, so today we're going to be running a seminar that Brother Dan did at the fair <clears throat> this year called I Feel Like You're Judging Me. And that seminar has resonated with folks um, at this fair and last year's fair um, a lot. So we felt like it'd be a good idea to run it again today. And uh, if you haven't seen that yet, please stick around and uh, uh, listen to that. And then uh, next weekend, I'll be hosting kind of a uh, Christmas living room concert with uh, folks from our different communities, getting videos and uh, Christmas wishes from them from all around the, uh, the country and uh, the world as well. Uh, and so we'll be bringing that to you next weekend. And then the following weekend, which is uh, <clears throat> January, uh, December 30th, um, Brother Asi will be back on the broadcast um, with a message on that day. So for now, let's go to Brother Dan's message. Well, I'll go ahead and get started. Um... Thanks for joining us. My name is Dan Lancaster, and uh, we're going to be talking about the quest for unity, particularly among Christian believers, and the challenges that are faced by the church today in coming to a place of unity, both by the culture that surrounds us and things that are happening inside the church. And um, we're going to be looking at cultural trends, and then we're going to be talking uh, from the scriptures. So... Um, I first gave this talk last year, and the week that I um, first gave the talk, there was a Barna poll that came out, and they, he titled the study, uh, Christians Cannot Agree on Unity. So I thought the topic may be relevant, <laughs> apparently even the definition of what unity is, what it isn't, what we're looking for, um, is apparently up for grabs in today's world. So. Um, this talk was born somewhat out of an observation that I've made over the years, having been here for over 30 years, part of this community now. I uh, have observed people's reactions to our way of life and to our faith, and um, there's been two reactions that kind of stand out to me, and one is a compliment, and the other is more of a criticism. The compliment is that people are... Um, they compliment us on the unity that they see amongst us as believers. And they say things like, we've never seen people who work together so well, people who have the kind of love in their relationships and families and marriages like we have seem to encounter here. And we know that we often fall short of that praise, but that compliment blesses us and encourages us a lot because that's what we're striving for. Jesus himself said that by this all men will, you, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, indicating that our greatest witness is not just our words as individuals about Christ and the gospel, but the, the reality of love in our corporate witness of brothers to brothers, sisters to sisters. He also said in his prayer for the church, he prayed that they would be brought to complete unity so that the world would know that he was sent by the Father. So it seems like this is a, a topic of central concern to the Lord Jesus himself, that unity is how the world is going to know that his love is real. 
and that he was real, that he, he, he was the answer to human relationships. So usually the observation that people see unity here is, is followed up by the question, well, how do you achieve this kind of unity? And we're going to get to that a little later. Uh, but first we need to look at a less pleasant reaction. There's a criticism that our unity sometimes seems to invoke, and it comes to us both from believers and from unbelievers, and it's usually expressed in some form of my title, I feel like you guys are judging me. Now, that's not usually said directly. That's usually something we'll hear about secondhand or you sometimes just feel. But people will encounter our way of life, and they will see that we are uh, serious about our faith. They'll see that we dress different than a lot of the surrounding culture. They'll see that our lifestyle is very different. And, um, and they come to conclusions based upon that. But we're grieved that that is the conclusion that is drawn. Um, we're human. We know we're capable of being judgmental, but that's certainly not our intent. We pray that neither our words nor our actions would ever communicate something like that. And you would not... Somehow, our way of life, nonetheless seems to give people that impression sometimes. Even though that's not in any of our ministry, it's not in our literature, nonetheless, people will come here and say things like, uh, do you guys believe you're the only church? Um, I sense a sense of uh, separatism here, or elitism, or there's all kinds of words for it, but basically, you guys must think that what you're doing is the only thing. And so I ask myself, where does that come from? How do people come to that conclusion? What's the thought process? And what I've come to is that it goes something like this. Um, and this may not be fair to everybody, but this is how it appears to me. That um, it goes something like this. Well, I see these people are very serious about their faith. Nobody would live this way, dress this way, behave this way, um, unless they believed it was absolutely necessary to do so. And they're obviously deeply religious. They must believe all of this is necessary for salvation. Otherwise, why would they be going to all of the trouble? And if they believe that it's necessary for salvation for them, then they must believe it's necessary for everyone. And because I'm not living that way, dressing that way, believing that way, then they must view me as, as lost, even though maybe you consider, one considers themselves to be a believer. So therefore, I think they're judging me. Now, I think that's a logical progression of thought. I do, but I think it's based on some false premises that we might examine here as we go along. So I think this mistaken conclusion results from two problems when we boil it down. Come on in, folks. Find a seat. Just don't judge me. <laughs> so two problems that I think that that train of thought stems from. One is that we are surrounded by a culture of moral relativism. This is the air that we breathe in modern Western culture. The other, I believe, can, comes from a confusion about what legitimately constitutes saving faith. And we're going to examine how the former influences the latter. Ultimately, we're seeking an answer to this question. Is it possible to maintain strong personal convictions and a belief in absolute truth without judging or alienating others who see things differently. In other words, how can believers work together towards unity in spite of their differences? So I'll give you a little roadmap for where we're going in the next 40 minutes or so. We're going to start talking about the culture around us, culture of relativism. Then we're going to talk about how that culture has affected the church in our day. 
Then we're going to look at the script at the Bible. We're going to talk about is what's the biblical definition of tolerance. Then we're going to look at a definition of saving faith, talk about a pathway to unity among believers, and then we're going to end by talking about the secret ingredient that makes for unity in the church. And I admit that I called it that to make you stay till the end. <laughs> now, I want to acknowledge none of the fundamental insights that I'll be sharing with you here originated from myself. I owe most, if not all of it, to the pioneers of the way of life that I'm enjoying the fruit of, so I want to give that acknowledgement at the beginning. Okay, we're starting with the culture we live in. The only thing absolutely forbidden is the belief in absolutes. We live in an age where things that were once accepted as what you would call givens, they were simply realities in the world that people had to live with. Uh, for example, biological gender. Those things are no longer to be assumed. Everything is flexible, everything is fluid. Um, traditional categories and definitions of social norms are being redefined. Things like marriage, what is that? Definitions are, are blurring, liquefying, you might say. All sorts of new self-defined identities are proliferating. No standard definition of anything seems to be allowed anymore. And a new all-important ethic has emerged that is purported to guide our society. And that is tolerance. It has been said that in the West, tolerance has taken the place of the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments as supposedly the new standard of virtue. This is how we judge whether people are behaving rightly. It's the highest good in society to tolerate any and all viewpoints and view all as equally valid. Unless that viewpoint claims the existence of absolute truth, and that is absolutely forbidden. That cannot be tolerated. So the new standard is that there is no standard. Tolerance becomes a euphemism for imposing a relativistic viewpoint on everybody, which is sort of absolutist, if you ask me. But we might call it a single-minded commitment to open-mindedness. This is birthed an ironic form of unity where everybody must agree that there is really no need to agree, that everything is relative. By the end of the 20th century, it was already being said that in higher education... This is according to Alan Bloom, who's taught in universities around the world. The one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of, he says, is that almost every student entering the university believes that truth is relative. He goes on to say, some are religious, some are atheists, some are to the left, some are to the right, some intend to be scientists, some humanists, or professionals, or businessmen, some are poor, some are rich. What is the one thing that is true of their perspective as a whole? They are unified only in their relativism. So this is this curious form of unity in which people are united only by their belief that no one needs to be united. And I'm posing here that it automatically inclines people to view anybody who actually is unified around what they would call truth in their beliefs and lifestyle as a threat. Why? Because such unity presumes a standard. It presumes that there is an absolute moral value 
that people should cohere around and identify with. And this is contrary to the new religion of tolerance in today's world. So Bloom says of modern young people, the danger they have been taught to fear from absolutism is not error, but intolerance. The true believer is the real danger. Do you follow that? So he's saying it's not that they worry that someone might be wrong. They worry that someone might be wrong or right or, or claim that there is such a thing as right. That's actually the problem is that you would believe that anybody could be right. So when encountering any expression of genuine unity amongst the people, today's postmoderns are inclined to say, I feel like you're judging me. Because something about your lifestyle communicates that you believe in some type of standard. Some have taken this even further. Um, Professor Stephen Gay says that in a modern democratic state, there can be no sacrosanct principles or unquestioned truths. He says religion is fundamentally incompatible with democracy. Now, I think that's a, a little strong, but we're going to talk about why. So how is all this affecting the church? Is it affecting the church? Is the culture of moral relativism that surrounds us, is it corroding the values and influence of the church? Most Americans would say yes. The effects of religion is being lost altogether. Many people are simply leaving the church behind. And I won't bore you with statistics, but Every metric that you look at is going to show a decline in church membership, in church attendance. There was a Newsweek article a few years ago that said, since the high water mark that was back in 1965, mainline Christian denominations have been, quote, running out of money and members and meaning. Now, these statistics are taking place at the same time, I'll tell you, as the general population of, the Ameri of America increased by 35%. So these are actually worse than they appear just on these numbers. Only 34% of mainline Christians actually even attend church regularly. Evangelicals have not fared much better. George Barna documented a 60% defection rate among evangelicals in just an eight-year span. Evangelical teens dropped from 10% to 4% of the U.S. teen population in seven years. So that's more than a 50% decline in Christian evangelical teens in the United States in just a seven-year period. Barna attributes this demise to the growing number of teenagers who accept moral relativism and pluralistic theology as their faith foundation. According to a 2005 Barna poll, which that's a long time ago now, I need to update that one, only 9% of born-again adults have a biblical worldview, which he defines um, as the belief that absolute moral truth exists, that such truth is contained in the Bible, and possess a handful of core beliefs that would actually reflect that truth. Now, none of these statistics in the church have kept media and pop culture from characterizing believers anyway as absolutists and Bible thumpers, rigid authoritarians demanding adherence to standards and all of this. But the journalist William Murchison, who is himself a mainline Christian, has pointed out that this popular stereotype of authoritative or authoritarian ministry in the church, quote, has things backwards and inside out, most of all when the topic is America's mainline churches. He says that in reality, sweet tolerance and gentle affirmation are the hallmarks of today's 
mainline Christians. So what are the effects of this relaxing of moral standards in the church itself? Once again, we'll bore you with a few more statistics before moving on. Unmarried cohabitation rates of self-professing born-again believers is almost identical to the general public. This is according to a Barna poll from 20 years ago. It hasn't gotten better. Two-thirds of unmarried Christians have not practiced chastity, and of course that would be the ones who admit that. Half of U.S. conservative Protestant adults do not believe that premarital sex is always wrong. Okay, so it's not just that they're not, believers are not living up to standards that they agree to, and they're just falling short of their own beliefs. They're changing their beliefs to fit their lifestyle. 47% of Christians admitted internet pornography was a major problem in their home. 30% of 6,000 pastors admitted viewing internet pornography in the past 30 days. This was done by Saddleback Church. 53% of men in the Promise Keepers movement viewed pornography in the last week, according to their survey. So should we be surprised that the divorce rate among born-again Christians is now slightly higher than the national average? So my question is, should the church tolerate this state of affairs? So let's stop for a second and talk about this. Perhaps believers are, in cue, are, are, are confused, excuse me. Perhaps they're confused because isn't tolerance a Christian virtue? Doesn't the Bible teach tolerance and accommodation? So let's talk about that for a second. I think we see a lot of examples of tolerance, especially in the New Testament. Jesus himself warned us not to judge others. He said he didn't come to condemn, but to save he stuck up for the underdog in dozens of encounters. He dined with tax collectors and sinners. He said to love our enemies. He offered living water to the woman at the well in spite of the fact that he knew that she'd had five husbands and the one she had now was not her husband. He tells us the parable of the prodigal son who comes home and is received by the father. He refused to condemn an adulteress caught in the very act. He even forgave those who crucified him. And then the apostles, followed, the, the apostles followed suit. Stephen forgave his murderers. Paul and Silas comforted their own jailer. So we see a lot of tolerance in the Bible. But as we seek a biblical definition of tolerance, we have to include other incidents in Scripture also, do we not? Such as Jesus calling a Gentile woman a dog and initially refusing to help her. Jesus castigating the Pharisees, calling them vipers, whitewashed tombs, children of hell. This doesn't fly with the modern definition of tolerance. He certainly wasn't tolerant of the money changers in the temple, was he? What about Paul calling Elimus a son of the devil, publicly criticizing the Cretans as liars and lazy gluttons, commanding the Corinthian church to turn a sinning brother over to Satan, calling the Pharisees dogs, Okay, is this, does this fit with our definition of tolerance from the Bible? Where is the sweet tolerance and gentle affirmation in those examples? So, is there a legitimate definition of tolerance that will be in keeping with the whole of Scripture? So let's begin by further clarifying what that slippery term means in today's world. So here's a definition of tolerance. This came from a dictionary of political thought 
back in the 1940s. The policy of forbearance towards that which is not approved. This is a more traditional understanding of tolerance. But this definition today is, you guessed it, no longer tolerated. (laughs) Mere disapproval is now considered intolerance, if not persecution. If you disagree with someone else's lifestyle or beliefs, then you're the problem. You're judging them. Just to have the opinion is not tolerated. Now, I love some quotes from a French professor of political science. I don't know if I'll say his name right because I can't say anything right in French. Philippe Benetton. He observed that, quote, today's prevalent idea of tolerance is connected to moral relativism. Each one has his own truth. To be tolerant in this view is to cling to the opinion that everything is a matter of opinion and of equal opinions at that. Therefore, he says, no one has the right to put forth a universal standard. He's criticizing this view, but he's defining it for us. To affirm that a particular standard is true by itself, apart from mere opinion, is considered an attack on tolerance. So allowing other people the freedom to live by their own lights is no longer deemed sufficient. So the new definition says tolerance must mean that you endorse all beliefs and practices of others as having equal validity to your own. And this is done in the name of a concept that they call moral neutrality, which I believe is a contradiction in terms on the face of it. Okay, think about it. We're supposed to apparently live in a state of suspended judgment where no one can really know. You have your truth, I have my truth, it's all a matter of opinion, it's all culturally determined. In some cultures, they, they teach you to love your neighbor. In other cultures, um, they eat their neighbors. It's all the same. It doesn't matter. It's a matter of how you were raised. Or maybe it's your cultural environment or whatever. But we can't say that one is better than another without being intolerant. Moral neutrality as a virtue is a logical fallacy. UT professor of philosophy, and he's, his name is even worse, J. Budzizewski, he says, I quote, it might seem remarkable that people who insist that tolerance means moral neutrality should themselves be so earnest in ridiculing those who are not neutral. But of course, they themselves aren't neutral either, he says. The scandal of neutrality is that its worshipers cannot answer the question, why be neutral, without committing themselves to particular goods. So that, that might be, it's for the sake of social peace, it's for the safe, sake of self-expression, or self-esteem, or ethnic pride, or what have you. But whatever your reason is for saying that moral neutrality is a virtue, is violating your own principle that everything is neutral. Does that make sense to you? I'll keep trying. He says, this is all a symptom of a deeper problem, that there is no such thing as neutrality. It's not merely unavoidable like a perfect circle. It's unthinkable and unapproachable like a square circle. Think about it. Values cannot be neutral. There's no value if everything is, has no value. 
Okay, let me clarify. If it's not clear, I'm not advocating that tolerance properly defined is a bad thing. I think it's a necessary element of a free culture. It's essential to the flourishing of free society. So let's explore what perhaps the most helpful criterion is for distinguishing legitimate tolerance from illegitimate tolerance, the popular counterfeit. There's a key distinction in the discussion of tolerance, and it's the question of compulsion. I like this definition here. True tolerance is a virtue born of confidence in the ability of truth to vindicate itself without instruments of coercion. If we remove from the table the prerogative to force someone else into compliance with your own belief, then it does become possible to believe in absolute truth without threatening the freedom of other people to believe whatever they wish. I think we would all agree that any religion or belief system that refuses to employ coercion cannot credibly pose a danger to society or a peril to democracy. On the other hand, a religious system that tries to seize the power of the government, of the state, the power of compulsion to conform people to their religious beliefs is a danger to society. Enter the Taliban and some of those types of situations. But for Christian believers, we believe in a God who says that he is love. That is presumably our supreme virtue. It is our goal. It is our means and our ends. It is everything, for our God is love. And if that's the case, how do we bring love to people? Can force accomplish that? If I threaten you with violent force, will I make you love me? If I put a gun to your head and say, I want you to say right now that you love me, you're probably going to say it, but you're not going to mean it. Right? Because internal transformation of the heart cannot be accomplished through external compulsion. So even if people are terribly misguided, attempting to force them to change their wrong beliefs is not only futile, it's counterproductive. I love this verse from the 1800s. And when religious sects ran mad, he held in spite of all his learning that if a man's belief is bad, it will not be improved by burning. So let's have some tolerance. This is Roger Williams, generally considered the father of the Baptist Church in America. He draws a distinction between the sword of steel and the sword of truth. He believed that as long as freedom of discussion could be safeguarded, the truth could take care of itself. Of course, he wasn't the first one to reject the sword of steel. That would be Jesus. Standing before Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus believes in the sword of truth and the ability of truth to take care of itself. Pilate, on the other hand, is a good relativist. You recall his response. Mm, your opinion, my opinion. What's this appeal to truth? So there's a lesson from history in this, isn't there? The lesson is that relativizing the truth does not make intolerance disappear. Because this relativist murdered this absolutist. Right? 
That's what the headline could have looked like in the day. Intolerant relativist murders harmless absolutist. But was the truth able to vindicate itself without appeal to coercion? Yes, indeed. True intolerance is when a majority forces its views on a minority. And we could actually say the opposite. Even if it were to be a minority forcing their views on a majority, force is the distinction. So there's a critical distinction here between spheres of society. The public sphere governed by the state is an impersonal coercive authority. There's the private sphere, family and church, governed by relational and voluntary authority. My point would be, and we could spend a long time on this, but I won't, is that the proper limits and restraints on the public sphere are not legitimately applied to the private sphere and vice versa. As I said before, most people would recognize it would be quite disastrous to allow for a religious group to get a hold of this public sphere. But at the same time, for the, for the state to use its authority to try to suppress religious authority that is non-coercive and voluntary um, is also a suppression of human freedom. To deny the rights of a voluntary institution to self-definition, this is a major problem. Okay, picture an example. Uh, let's take the Girl Scouts for an example. Um, let's say there's a 30-year-old man who self-identifies as an 8-year-old girl. And he believes that the government should protect his right to go along on the Girl Scout sleepover. Should the government be enforcing this man's right to his self-definition, his right to impose his definition of what a girl is on this voluntary institution called Girl Scouts? I would say no, that that's a travesty. That's a violation of the liberty of that voluntary institution to define themselves what they believe is truth. So hopefully we've now established sufficiently a definition of tolerance that corresponds to biblical values, not to mention principles of freedom. Biblical tolerance is that we do show forbearance, but we allow for disapproval. We let the truth take care of itself without coercion. Let's move now to the question of how Christian believers should approach differences amongst themselves as they seek for unity. Unity or uniformity. As we've been discussing, believers are saturated in a culture of moral relativism. Is it affecting us? I think I've tried to show briefly that it is. We absorb it almost by osmosis. You'll find Christians today who will even self-righteously parrot stock mottos of relativism that do not come from Scripture. Things like, there are many roads up the mountain, as if God sees them all the same and they all go to the same place. The church has been infected by the new faith in moral neutrality, and so many believers are not even motivated to strive for unity. In fact, they even view too much unity as evidence of a problem. Shared identity amongst believers is not considered only unnecessary, but to many Christians today, they would say that it's even bad fruit. It's an indication of authoritarianism or something. Something is wrong when you see people who are in such unity. Jesus didn't seem to think that was unity was a problem, but today... 
believers are very worried about that, some of them. So then here come all the labels and the buzzwords. Have you ever heard any of these applied before? We've heard all of these from time to time. I will confess that on the receiving end of all of this, it is sometimes tempting to say, I feel like you're judging me. So I think there are two ditches as the church strives for unity that we've got to be trying to avoid. The one ditch is the one I'm calling uniformity, and I'm using that term to describe a process wherein we push and presser and try to coerce other believers into agreement and compliance with our own standards of what truth is or how believers should live, so on and so forth. Even though they don't really feel it themselves, it's an attempt to override people's conscience. That's losing faith that the truth can take care of itself. That if it's true, that if someone's heart is open, they're going to be able to see it for themselves simply by hearing it presented in love. It doesn't require people imposing those standards upon a congregation or on other believers. Number two, on the ditch on the other side, I'm calling a counterfeit unity, where we just water down all standards, all scripture, to the, to the lowest common denominator, and we just unite in our shared belief that beliefs don't really matter. And we celebrate our agreement to disagree. This is just relativism diluting the word of God to the point that it's no longer definable, no longer actionable, and believers are no longer distinguishable from the world. So my question is, can we avoid both of these ditches? Is it possible that greater manifestations of unity in word and in deed can result solely from powerful internal transformation in response to the truth? Now to answer that, I'm going to take an old-fashioned approach, if you will tolerate it, and I'm going to turn to the Bible for some answers. Okay, so hopefully this is the part that wakes you up, not putting you to sleep. Ephesians 4 has what I'm going to call a recipe for unity. It begins with an excellent description of biblical tolerance. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, lots of modern people would feel very good about all of this, especially if we reverse this part over here that says unity of the Spirit and say instead a spirit of unity. There is a difference. Okay, But then Paul doubles down to make sure that we don't misunderstand him. Is he saying that God is schizophrenic? Is he saying that there are many roads up the mountain? Is he saying that it doesn't really matter, anybody's version is good enough, let's just call them all good and love each other? Is that what he's saying? Next verse, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in you all. Did you notice a key word? You guys are sharp. Okay, so he's saying there's one way. He, he talks about the attitude we need to have, then he says, and there is one way. Don't misunderstand me, there's one way. Now he's going to go on to explain what we do with that disparity between all these people that we're bearing with and this one absolute standard. He goes on to say that 
none of us have the fullness of revelation. To each one of us, a grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so I don't have a monopoly on the truth. You don't have a legitimate monopoly on what's true and what's not, or what's God's way or what isn't. So he then proceeds from here to say that there is a plural cooperative leadership ministry that must operate in the church if it is to avoid deception and false teaching and come to unity and maturity. So he gave some to be apostles. I'm skipping the parenthetical here in Ephesians. You can look at that some other time. But he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Key sentence. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men, the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into the head who is Christ. Okay, so there are some key things in here. If you remember the verse from before, he says we need to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit until we come to the unity of the faith. And of knowledge. How are we going to do that? We're going to speak the truth in love. Love without the truth does not build the body. The truth without love does not build the body or bring unity. And we've got to maintain the humility that acknowledges that we're all a work in progress. We've got to bear with each other in love. Now, this allows us to think of ourselves with sober judgment, aware that others may possess truth or revelation that we don't have, or we may possess truth or revelation that they don't have. Now, I find it significant that Paul is writing this to the Ephesian church, and yet we can read in the book of Acts the Ephesian church actually putting this process into play, and Paul with them. So here in Acts 19, we see Paul, he comes to Ephesus, And finding some disciples there, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice that he calls them disciples, and he concedes that they are believers, and yet they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. So he asked them how they were baptized, and they say, Well, it was John's baptism. This is all they've heard about. So Paul brings more truth to them. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that is on Christ Jesus. Now, when they heard this, they said to Paul, I feel like you're judging us. I mean, we respect the fact that you have different doctrines than we were taught, but, you know, that's your truth. This is our truth, and I believe God accepts us for who we are. He, um, he understands. We felt his smile on us already. He's blessed our congregation I don't see why we need to start incorporating something else like that now. It's just going to make people nervous and they might even leave the church. Is that what they said? No, it's very simple. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So I ask you, if Paul refers to them as believers and as disciples, were they saved before 
these steps of revelation that he brought to them, that they walked in. If they were already saved, then is, is what he's talking about here unnecessary for salvation? It's just an add-on. Maybe it's an extra, extra blessing that's for some people, but it's not for everybody. Is that how we should view this? That's, that's the way some churches would approach it today. Or on the other hand, is this absolutely necessary for salvation? And does that mean that they weren't really yet believers? They weren't really yet disciples? They weren't really yet saved before this experience? How do we reconcile these two beliefs? This is where it becomes critical to understand exactly what constitutes saving faith. Now, this is a big topic. Okay, I do not have time, and certainly you don't, to get into that in, in a to large degree here. But I'll be blunt uh, for the sake of time and say this is how I believe the scriptures are defining saving faith. That it is an unfolding walk in relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's discuss this in the context of the thought process that I talked about before that leads to, I feel like you're judging me. Okay, so... These people are very serious about their faith. Look at the way they live. I'm not living that way. They must be judging me and saying, well, you're not saved because you're not doing what we think believers should be doing. Okay, now just to comment on that, I'll concede that we're very serious about our faith. But from there, as I said, the assumptions break down from a wrong framework of salvation. Okay, there's a presumption of the way we are viewing salvation that I would say is oftentimes false. So I believe that repentant sinners are saved by grace through faith. Now, I'm going to get nods from every evangelical in the room, I think, on that. Probably every Protestant in the room. But let's define that a little more precisely. Okay? I don't believe saving faith comes from a list of correct doctrines that are believed or adhered to. And that if you check all the right boxes, you're saved. If you miss some of those boxes or check some wrong ones on the other side of the aisle, then you're lost. I don't believe that's how the Lord looks at it. I don't think that's how scriptures describe it. Nor do I believe that salvation is merely a one-time legal declaration that kind of enacts an eternal life insurance policy and after that it doesn't matter what you do. It's like this minimum line approach. You just get that taken care of and then whatever. I don't think that's scriptural either. Don't have time to defend that. I believe we're saved through a genuine living relationship with God. It is this right relationship with him that allows his sacrifice to justify us. So, I believe this is accords with Scripture. Jesus defines eternal life, that's salvation, that believers would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now, crucial point, you cannot have a genuine relationship with someone that you call Lord and Savior and Master of your life without obeying him. Jesus was quite clear on this. We could do a big scripture study on this, but we'll just do one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. So who is saved? I believe it's those who are living in authentic, faithful relationship with God, loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and joyfully walking in heartfelt obedience to all the truth that God has revealed to them. Does the Lord show different versions of truth to different people? I think you've already heard my opinion on that. No, but it is an unfolding revelation that comes through this walk of faith. Romans 1, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. 
Jesus would say, to him who has, more will be given. It's unfolding. His truth is absolute. It's unchanging. Our understanding of that truth is partial. It is we who see through a glass darkly, who are needing to grow into, in grace and truth, as Peter would say. So different aspects of the truth may have been revealed to one sincere believer than have been revealed to another sincere believer or congregation. The belief that God will restore his truth line by line to his people, individually and corporately, is called restorationism by theologians. The Anabaptist movement is historically considered a restorationist movement. They believed that the church went into a period of thick darkness through the Middle Ages, Catholicism, etc., and that through the Protestant Reformation and then into what is called the Radical Reformation of the Anabaptist movement, that this idea was that God would break forth again from his word truth that had been obscured by the ages and that people would discover how the church is supposed to be and restore the church from the book of Acts. This is John Robinson. This is one of my favorite quotes in, from history. John Robinson was the pastor of the pilgrims, the, the group that came over on the Mayflower. Now, he did not come with them um, because the whole congregation wasn't able to come, so he stayed behind with the rest of the congregation. But when they left, he charged them, and the whole thing is great. I'm just going to read you a little excerpt from it. But he charged, he was a restorationist. Listen to him. I charge you before God and his blessed angels that you follow me no further than you've seen me follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has more truth yet to break forth out of his holy word. I cannot sufficiently bewail the condition of the reformed churches who are come to a period in religion and will go at present no further than the instruments of their reformation. Luther and Calvin were great and shining lights in their times, yet they penetrated not into the whole counsel of God. I beseech you, remember it, tis an article of your church covenant, that you be ready to receive whatever truth be made known to you from the written word of God. I love this because I think it corresponds perfectly with scriptures throughout the Bible. Proverbs, the path of the righteous is as the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. What is the light? Well, the light is the word of God. Your word is a lamp, a light to my pathway. This is a walk. First John, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The word fellowship here is koinonia. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as communion. That means to have union, unity. So this attitude of walking in the light is what allows that unity. Jesus, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. This is not on our time schedule. This is God's time frame as he chooses to reveal his truth to us. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He's talking about John the Baptist. And he says to them, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So the Pharisees have started down the path and then progressed no further. Jesus is obviously not accepting the stop. Hebrews 10, the just shall live by faith. Now if anyone shrinks back, my soul, this is God, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back unto perdition, but of those who believe unto 
the saving of the soul. Here's Paul in Philippians 3. Brethren, this, everybody knows this one. I don't count myself to have apprehended. Now that's saying a lot for somebody like Paul. Paul brought us a lot of truth. And yet he's humble enough to say he hasn't apprehended. One thing I do, I forget the things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, is Paul speaking this merely about individual believers? Is he just saying this should be the attitude of each person? Or is he placing this in the context of what brings unity in the church among believers? I would argue that it is both, but it is also, so it is also the latter. Because the next verse, he says, Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. Think what way? Think what he just said. That we don't consider ourselves to have it all, but that we press towards greater revelation. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. But in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained, so let us be of the same mind. So, I believe it's a key to unity in the church to understand salvation as an unfolding walk in relationship with God. I hope it's clear by now why I'm saying that, but let me line it out a little bit. If we believe that salvation is found in a particular set of doctrines, then the door is open for constant judging because you have your set of doctrines, I have my set of doctrines, and we compare them, and I know you're wrong, and you know I'm wrong. And that, that's where doctrine wars come from. We're always comparing with each other our lists and categories of truth. But if we see salvation as a progressive journey into truth, then it is not one's current position on that pathway that determines salvation. It is instead one's posture or direction on that pathway that determines salvation. The Lord is looking at us and he's asking, are you coming towards me? Or are you hiding and defending behind what you already understand? And, and I've got my truth, thank you. Please don't show me anything else. But if we have that right posture, I believe God accepts us. And so it's not for us to look at one another and determine where they're at on the pathway, but I do believe it is for us to look at one another and say, do we have the same attitude towards our Lord? Are we open? Are we willing to walk in the light of his truth? We may have to work through things. There's things we're not going to see eye to eye on. But can we have the unity of the Spirit? Can we be diligent in that as we reach for the unity of the faith? We all fall short of God's standards. We're all dependent on his saving grace to impute to us what has not yet been revealed or imparted to us. But James tells us that guilt is according to knowledge. He says, to the one who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Paul says, if there is a willingness, the gift is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. God is understanding towards us just as we are understanding towards our children as they grow in their knowledge. We expect different levels of obedience and understanding from older children than we do from younger ones because we acknowledge that they are on the way. So let's judge a tree not by its doctrines, but by its fruit. Okay, you made it this far. Last thing, secret ingredient to unity. Now I'm going to forewarn you, there's a reason why this ingredient is seldom used in the church today, and that's because it doesn't taste good, not to the flesh. 
I was, in, I was at a funeral one time um, a few years ago with a friend and brother, and we were walking through the cemetery after the funeral, and there were tombstones of all types in there. There, was, there were huge ones that must have cost a fortune, obviously from a wealthy person. There were little ones that just had a name and a date. There were people in there who had lived to be over a hundred, and there were people that didn't live one day. There were famous people, names you would recognize, and there were lots of people you'd never heard of. And my friend, as we're walking through in silence, he, at one point he turns to me and he says, you know, I guess once you get here, everyone's the same. Now think about that. In the graveyard, there's no competition. There's no ambition. There's no greed. There's no ego. All the things that separate people are gone. So what I'm proposing to you is that there is unity of the spirit in the graveyard of the flesh. Paul said in Romans that we are to be united together in the likeness of his death. In biblical terms, this profound death to self, to self-seeking, self-centeredness, to selfish ambition is called repentance. And that, brothers and sisters, is what is missing in the church. That is what prevents unity in the church. Paul called it crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. Solzhenitsyn, Russian author, also saw repentance as the key to overcoming divisions and a starting place for unity. Here's a quote from him. Repentance is the first bit of firm ground underfoot, the only one from which we can go forward, not to fresh hatreds, but to concord. Repentance is the only starting point for spiritual growth. Repentance has been called the missing essential for restoring the church to its original power and unity. I can't give a whole teaching in the last five minutes here on repentance, but it is a profound turning point when you turn away from your center in yourself and you look to one center, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, what we have with a conglomeration of people that we call the church is a bunch of competing self-centeredness. But if there is one Lord and we're all surrendered to his will, unity becomes possible. Can you tolerate one more example from the Bible? I'll close with this. This is from Acts um, 18. And it tells us a story that I think illustrates the point we've been talking about, about a right attitude. Now, there was a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. Listen to how he's described. No other man in scripture is described like this. He is an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he is speaking accurately, he's speaking powerfully, he's speaking fervently. God is using him. But he's not acquainted with the fullness of truth. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And what does Apollos, Apollos do with this? Well, you know what he does with it. He says, I feel like you guys are judging me. I mean, I've already been taught by the, by the Lord. I already understand the way of Jesus accurately. God is using me. My spirit is right. I'm 
And you guys, by the way, are tent makers. I'm educated, I'm gifted, you guys are making tents. No, that's not what he does. He receives this truth from them. He didn't use the faith that he already had as a shield to protect him from any more truth or light that God might ask him to walk in faith. No matter the vessels that came through, he showed humility. Now, he's later called an apostle of the church. If an apostle like Apollos can have this kind of humility, so can we. So in conclusion, let me close by saying plainly to whom it may concern, we are not judging you. We do not presume to know where you are on your journey of faith, but we want to assume the best and we hope that you would show us the same regard. We would love to share anything we've learned from God's goodness, from his truth, with anyone who's interested, and we would look further to hearing from you grace or truth or light that you might bring to us in the spirit and from the scriptures. We are eager to interface and network in mutual respect with other believers. And after all, as the world we live in increasingly succumbs to the fog and the confusion in a time when the love of most is going to grow cold, is it not the hour for the church to come together to let our light shine brighter? So let's show by our love for one another that we are his disciples indeed. And let's reach for complete unity that the world may know that Jesus is the answer. Thank you.